0: Ninety-one percent of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.
1: Sixteen-year-old Jennifer Persia was waiting to hear the good news. It was a big day for her stepfather having closed a major business deal, and the couple was riding high. Tragically what was meant to be a celebratory evening would instead become a nightmare. Just hours after speaking to Jennifer, the couple arrived home to find the house unusually dark. Not a single light on, not a sign of motion inside. Upon entering, they quickly discovered why. Jennifer lie in a pool of blood on the beige living room carpet. By the time they reached her, it was already too late. She was gone. But the hunt for her killer was just beginning. Over the course of the next 27 years, investigators and family alike were desperate to find the assailant who had murdered the bright, talented, and athletic teen seemingly in a robbery gone wrong. A robbery which had netted him just $200. While the small town of Magnolia, New Jersey was rocked by the murder, its citizens frightened that a killer walked amongst them. Investigators began to discover that the killer may not have been an anonymous monster stalking the streets but instead, someone Jennifer had known and trusted. Someone who was close, perhaps almost family. This is Trace Evidence, episode 153, The Murder of Jennifer Persia. Welcome to Trace Evidence. I'm your host, Stephen Pacheco. Today, we examine the truly horrifying murder Of 16 year old Jennifer Persia. Before getting into the case, just a few notes about the show. Trace Evidence is a weekly true crime podcast focused on unsolved murders and disappearances. You can follow the show on social media on Twitter at Trace Ev Pod, Instagram at Trace Evidence Pod, or by searching Facebook for Trace Evidence. If you're interested in supporting the show and getting some Trace Evidence merch, there's a Patreon at patreon.com slash trace evidence, or you can donate directly via PayPal. Visit trace-evidence.com for all social media links, donation options, and contact information. You can submit case suggestions through the website or email me directly at traceevidencepod at gmail.com. In the spring of 1994, Jennifer Persia had her whole life ahead of her. By 16, she was already a skilled saxophone player and talented athlete on the varsity team, winning medals in state competitions as a sophomore. There was no limit to how far she could go, until one quiet Monday night, when all of her possibilities were stolen, seemingly over a matter of just $200, leading to the teen's brutal murder. This is episode 153, The Murder of Jennifer Persia. It had been an exciting day for Mick and Georgia McNair, and as evening slowly settled over their small town of Magnolia, the celebration was only just beginning. As the couple wound their way through the quiet suburb, referred to by residents as one square mile of friendliness, they had no way of knowing that an evening of joy would so rapidly transform into a nightmare they'd never imagined possible. Arriving home first, Georgia found the house unusually dark. When Mick pulled up moments later, he too was wondering why. Not a single light burned inside the structure. The front lawn, normally bathed in the glow spilling from the windows, was drowned in shadow, and there was an uneasy absence of motion. No sound. Nothing to indicate that anyone was home, and yet both knew Jennifer was there. Georgia had spoken to her daughter just a few hours earlier and the 16-year-old knew they'd be having dinner together. In fact, Jennifer was supposed to have had the meat defrosting and water boiling, so they could jump right into making spaghetti together. At first, they thought, maybe there's a power outage, but the dim yellow and electric blue glow emitting from neighboring homes canceled that possibility. Neither was worried. There was no real reason to be. Maybe Jennifer had a headache, or had drifted off to sleep on the couch. Teenagers are an odd breed, and Mick and Georgia had long ago learned there wasn't always a logical answer for their behavior, or any answer at all. Mick made his way toward the side door, the normal entryway, which fed directly into the kitchen. Georgia trailed several steps behind. Pulling the door open, Mick stepped inside, slinging his briefcase up onto the counter, when out of the corner of his eye, he caught sight of a shape he couldn't immediately define. While his eyes worked to adjust to the darkness, his fingers searched for and quickly caught the light switch. A moment after the blinding light flashed on, his gaze became transfixed on the motionless figure of his 16-year-old stepdaughter lying on the beige living room carpet in a pool of blood. Pumpkin Mickey shouted out the name he'd used to refer to Jennifer ever since she'd come into his life at just six years old. There was no response. Rushing towards her, Mick reached out, but found her skin cold to the touch. There was no breathing, no noise. She was gone. As the horror of this reality slowly began settling over him, Mick heard George's scream exploding from behind him. Spinning away quickly, He wrapped his arms around his wife and dragged her back out the door, telling her not to look as she broke down into hysterical screaming. Running out onto the front lawn, Georgia wailed again and again. Unintelligible sounds slowly took the shape of cries for help, and as neighbors came running up, all Georgia could do was point towards the door and beg for someone to save her daughter, but it was already too late. Jennifer was dead, but her killer was out there maybe even close enough to have heard Georgia's heartbroken and grief-stricken screams. Jennifer Lynn Persia was born on Sunday, March 5, 1978, to parents Georgia Walker and Mark Persia in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. At the time of her birth, Jennifer was the third daughter born to this couple and would be the last they would have together. Bright, funny, sweet, and charming, Jennifer's been described by friends and family alike as a deeply caring, extremely kind child. From a young age, her athletic ability and talent was evident as she took up an interest in softball and later track. While both Mark and Georgia deeply loved their children, the marriage itself wasn't built to last. The couple would separate in the early 80s, with their divorce finalizing in 85. A few years later, in 1989, Jennifer moved with Georgia across the Delaware River and into the small borough of Magnolia in Camden County, New Jersey. A small, quiet suburb with a population of just under 5,000, Magnolia has been regarded by residents as a hidden gem, a calm and friendly place tucked between major cities and interstate hubs. For many, it was the perfect place to raise a family, and when Georgia settled into a home on Washington Avenue, everything seemed to be going according to plan. Georgia eventually began dating a man named Charles McNair, Mick, to his friends, a former stock car racer who now ran his own body shop. Divorced with children from a previous marriage himself, Mick and Georgia clicked, and Jennifer quickly took to the man who would become her stepfather. Mick later described Jennifer as his best friend, saying that they had done everything together and were extremely close. Mark, who had remained in Upper Derby, Maintained a close relationship with his daughter as well, often picking her up to spend the weekend or a few days together for father-daughter time. There was no shortage of love and affection for Jennifer to go around, and she paid it back tenfold. When Georgia and Mick married, the couple along with Jennifer moved a few miles away to the two-story white Cape Cod home on Jefferson Avenue, the home Mick had grown up in. Jennifer transitioned into Magnolia Public School, where she quickly made friends and became heavily involved in school activities. By 8th grade, she was a member of the safety patrol, yearbook staff, and stage crew. She played softball, joined track, and had become a skilled saxophone player in the band. Principal Eleanor Campbell described Jennifer to the Courier Post, saying, She was just so special and bubbly. She was the kind of kid who always wanted to help others she was one of our class leaders. Kids just looked up to her. She always wanted to be involved. End quote. Moving on to Sterling High School, just a few miles away in nearby Somerdale, Jennifer continued both her heavy involvement in extracurricular activities, as well as sharpening her advanced athletic ability. She continued on in the band and joined the color guard as well, but her true passion was in track, where she would excel at both the discus and shot put as well as being able to outrun everyone else on the field. In May of 1993, competing as a freshman against a field made up almost entirely of seniors, Jennifer earned the bronze with her name being printed in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Jim Gallagher, Sterling's track coach, described Jennifer's skill and ability, telling the Post, quote, She lettered as a varsity member of the track team in shot put and discus as a freshman. She was extremely competitive, very strong, and polite. She was an all-American type girl. End quote. Jennifer kept herself busy away from school as well, joining the teen club of the Berean Baptist Church, as well as picking up a job at the Bridgeport Speedway, selling photographs of winning race cars, a job Mick had helped her acquire. In March of 1994, Jennifer turned 16, and while she wasn't directly in a rush, she began to consider future prospects. There were two which really stood out. Law, where she could stand up for those who couldn't stand up for themselves, as she had often done throughout her time in school, never wanting to see someone bullied or treated unfairly. Or perhaps medicine, pediatrics to be precise. She loved children, and what better way to show it, she thought, than to spend her life trying to help them. While oftentimes teenagers can become rebellious and challenging towards their parents, Jennifer never really caused an issue. She was forthright and stood by her beliefs, but she steered clear of trouble. Georgia later explained to the media, saying, quote, She had a heart of gold. She would do anything for anyone. She didn't do drugs. She didn't smoke cigarettes. She was a good kid. End quote. No matter what was going on, Jennifer took the time to let those around her know how she felt and what they meant to her, even doing so with her signature wit and humor. Signing the back of her sophomore picture, Jennifer wrote, Mom, I love you so much. I hope you keep this along with all the goofy pictures of me. I think you are the greatest. Love, your favorite daughter. End quote. Mick noted how, while other kids her age always seemed to be too busy to spend time with their parents, wanting to hang out with their friends instead, Jennifer loved being around them. As he explained to the Inquirer, quote, You know how kids are always in a rush? There was not one morning that I didn't get a kiss from Jennifer going out the door to school. Not one night that I didn't get a kiss and an I love you before she went to bed. Seven days a week. End quote. By 16, Jennifer's devotion to track had paid off, both in acquired skill and physical prowess. She was a tough young woman, standing 5 feet 8 inches tall and weighing 140 pounds, with muscular legs and a strong upper body. As Georgia put it, you wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of a kick or a punch from Jennifer. She knew how to handle herself and had the strength to back it up. She had also begun to capture the attention of boys, who grabbed her attention as well. With long, dark hair, a smile that could disarm even the most stubborn of her peers, and an undefinable charisma, Jennifer made friends easily. She also began dating, in small bursts here and there, but as March neared its end, she and her boyfriend split up, according to Gary Griucci, a classmate and friend since sixth grade. Easter fell on Sunday, April 3rd, and Jennifer celebrated alongside her family. The next weekend, she was preparing to spend a few days in Pennsylvania with her father, Mark, but tragically, would never get the chance to see him again. That would be their last encounter. School was out for the week, and Jennifer was looking forward to hanging out with friends, chatting on the phone, and spending time with her parents. However, there was work to be done too, with track practice ongoing despite the break, and Jennifer wasn't planning on missing out. On the last morning of her life, Monday, April 4th, 1994, Jennifer awoke early to get over to practice, which began at 9 a.m. Sterling High was just over a mile away, and for Jennifer, a quick jog could get her there in less than 15 minutes. According to her coach and teammates, practice went off without any issues, and Jennifer seemed to be in good spirits. While no one seems to have accounted for exactly how long practice lasted, it has been said that Jennifer was done and back home on Jefferson Avenue by 12 p.m. Over the course of the next few hours, Jennifer hung out around the house, but for her, Georgia, and Mick, it was an exciting day that was the beginning of a new adventure. Georgia was working as a bartender at the time, while Mick ran a body shop. However, over all the years he'd run the business, Mick had always rented out space. That Monday, he would finally be buying his own building to house the operation in, in nearby Lawndale. In their excitement, the couple called home to Jennifer several times that day because, as Mick told reporters, they were as elated as kids on Christmas morning. At approximately 3 p.m., Georgia called home and spoke with Jennifer. The two chatted for a short period of time as she checked in on how her daughter's day had been while updating her on progress with the body shop business. Forty-five minutes later, Georgia called home again. This time, it was to make dinner plans where she asked Jennifer to pull the meat from the freezer, drop it in the sink to defrost. Jennifer agreed to fill a pot of water and throw it on the stove, and to have it boiling by the time the couple got home so they could make spaghetti and meatballs. Mother and daughter exchanged I love yous, not knowing this would be the last time they would ever speak. The call ended at approximately 4.15 p.m. According to the established timeline, Jennifer next spoke to a friend from school. The call began around 5.30 p.m., and it was during this call that there came the first indication that something strange might be going on. According to the Philadelphia Daily News, Jennifer's friend, who has never been identified by investigators, explained that while they were chatting on the phone, there was a knock at the front door. Reportedly, it was a man who said that he was looking for Georgia and Mick. After informing the man that neither was home, Jennifer went back to her conversation, but several minutes later noticed the man passing by the house again. It didn't make sense. They live near the end of a cul-de-sac, so the man shouldn't have still been in the area. That man's identity has never been determined, or at least if it has been, it's not been revealed publicly although some members of the family have speculated about who it may have been. Whoever he was, it is believed he was involved in the murder. The final sighting of Jennifer occurred approximately an hour later, sometime between 6 and 6.30 p.m. A neighbor who's never been named glanced out the window and noticed Jennifer sitting on the front steps of her home. Sometime over the course of the next two hours, Georgia left work at the bar, and drove over to the new garage Mick had purchased. From the garage, she called home, planning to let Jennifer know what time they'd be there, but the call went unanswered. Not thinking it was anything to worry about, the couple watched as electricians flipped on power to the building before closing up for the night to head home and celebrate. That night, however, their lives would be forever transformed, and what should have been the start of something great became the first sleepless night in a life that would be full of them. Arriving home at approximately 8.30 p.m., just two hours later, Georgia and Mick found the home completely dark. This was somewhat unusual as Jennifer always turned the lights on as the sun went down. Together, the couple approached the side door and entered into the kitchen. It was here that Mick caught sight of a shape he couldn't define, and upon turning on the lights, saw Jennifer lying on the living room carpet in a pool of blood. When Mick discovered Jennifer's body cold, he knew she was gone, and as he later told the inquirer, quote, she was cold. It didn't just happen at eight thirty. i literally put my arms around Georgia and dragged her out of the house. She was hysterical, end quote. Neighbors responded to the sound of Georgia screaming and police were immediately called. Upon their arrival, investigators began examining both the scene and Jennifer's body. While right off the bat they couldn't necessarily determine a cause of death, Camden County Prosecutor Edward Borden spoke to the media, noting there were multiple incidents of trauma, saying, I can only say there was no gunshot wound. We've been sifting through the evidence. The investigation is proceeding. According to investigators, there were no signs of forced entry, which left them with two possibilities. Either Jennifer had left the front door open, it had been a warm afternoon, allowing the intruder to enter without a struggle, or maybe she would have let the killer in with it being someone she knew or recognized. While there was no sign the home had been broken into, inside there were many indications that a massive struggle had ensued. Based on blood trails and broken glass, it appeared that the struggle had moved through the kitchen. Living room, and ultimately ended near the base of the stairs leading up to the second floor. A heavy glass mug was found shattered near Jennifer, and investigators believe she likely struck her attacker with it. Considering what appeared to be defensive wounds on her arms and hands, police believe she fought vigorously for her life. As Borden later told the Courier Post, she put up a heck of a fight, and her assailant had to suffer some bruises and possible cuts during the scuffle. At the very least, the assailant had to be covered with blood when fleeing the house. End quote. Word was transmitted to investigators and local law enforcement, as well as hospitals and the media, to be on the lookout for anyone who might have unexplained scratches or bruising. Also, considering the amount of blood at the scene, police believe there was a good chance someone would have seen the suspect who would have been wearing clothes soaked in blood. Trying to find a motive for the crime proved to be trickier at least at first. Examination of the house didn't show any signs of robbery. There were credit cards and jewelry out in the open, but no attempt had been made to take them. No drawers had been opened. There was no sign the killer had been searching for anything of value. The autopsy later confirmed that Jennifer had not been sexually assaulted, and so what exactly had caused this atrocious crime to occur wasn't very clear. However, when Mick was brought into the home to speak with investigators and have a look around, he quickly noted something was missing. On a shelf in the master bedroom closet, there had been four large five-pound containers filled with coins. The vast majority of the coins were Susan B. Anthony's silver dollars, though there were also some two- and five-dollar coins. All told, the value was estimated to have been between 200 and $300. Had Jennifer truly been killed by someone looking to grab jars full of coins? This was the best theory investigators had to work with, but it also led them to believe that the killer likely not only knew those coins were in the home, he had probably been in the home himself and was familiar with its layout. This lent credence to the possibility that Jennifer had let the killer in, him likely being someone that she or her family had known. Why it had turned to murder, however, was another question, and one for which there was no solid answer. At the time, it was theorized that the killer may not have known Jennifer was home and attacked when she surprised him. Or perhaps the killer had been invited in by Jennifer and planned to steal the coins, but was caught in the act. Perhaps still, the killer simply didn't expect 16 year old Jennifer to be as strong a fighter as she was, and as things escalated, the killer lost control. While there's never been any mention of fingerprints being located, police did acknowledge they acquired DNA evidence which they believe belongs to the killer. In early articles, that DNA was reported as having been found in the form of blood. However, it was later stated that DNA was found in addition to the blood, though what else was found has never been revealed. That first night, Georgia and Mick were devastated at what had happened, and since police needed to investigate... They weren't allowed back inside. The two turned to their neighbor, 38-year-old Steve O'Brien, who had been a lifelong friend of Mick's. The two had grown up next door to one another. O'Brien provided the couple with a bedroom in the house, which belonged to his parents at the time, though they were out of town. By sunrise on the morning of Tuesday, April 5th, all of Magnolia had become aware of the murder. Neighbors, friends, classmates, and teachers were shocked by what had happened. And the small town feel of Magnolia was rocked by the possibility that there was a killer out there stalking the streets. Many of them would receive visits from police, who were to begin conducting interviews with everyone who knew Jennifer, lived nearby, or knew her family. Neighbors stated that they had not heard any sounds of a struggle that night. No screams, no broken glass. It was strange, considering the Cape Cod home was flanked by two houses no more than 30 feet away. And as one of Jennifer's sisters later put it, the neighbors were always nosy. Shockingly, it appeared, not a single person had seen the killer either, near the home or in the area surrounding it. Or if they had, they weren't sharing that information. It was during early interviews that police learned several details. Firstly, they were told that Jennifer and her boyfriend had broken up recently. And while investigators followed up and interviewed the ex-boyfriend, he was ultimately cleared from being a suspect. Secondly, they spoke with the friend Jennifer had called the night she was killed, the one who had been on the phone when there was a knock at the door. Prosecutor Borden later told reporters that they believed the man coming to the door was the perpetrator. It was theorized he was surprised to find Jennifer home and lingered in the area, returning when it got dark to try and steal the coins. While police didn't have a name... Borden expressed the belief that the stranger Jennifer saw that night may have been associated with one or both of her parents, either as an employee or an acquaintance. Borden later stated they did not believe the killer was a boyfriend or actual family member. Years later, during an interview on television, Georgia revealed that the friend also stated that Jennifer referred to the man at the door as an old friend of the family. On Wednesday, April 6th, the autopsy was conducted by Dr. Robert Siegel. According to the inquirer, several details about the crime were learned through this examination. Dr. Siegel determined that Jennifer had been assaulted in three different ways. There was evidence showing that she had suffered blunt force trauma to the head by an unknown object. She had also been strangled when an unknown binding was twisted around her neck. Finally, and perhaps most horrifyingly, The 16-year-old had been stabbed in the upper chest and lower neck at least 22 to 24 times by a smaller sized item. Initially, it was suggested that it may have been a pocket knife, though there's also been speculation about the possibility of a screwdriver or ice pick. None of the weapons associated with the murder were either located, not the blunt force weapon, the binding, or the penetrating weapon. Police did search in a wide area around the home, but never recovered any evidence there. Dr. Siegel determined that Jennifer's cause of death came as a combination of the stab wounds and the strangulation. In hopes of trying to track the killer, authorities began trying to track the stolen coins, but found it would be much more complicated than they'd imagined. While those coins are not often in circulation throughout the country, having been minted more than 15 years earlier, only between 1979 and 1981 before a 1999 reissue, the casinos in Atlantic City often had a lot of them, and that caused them to be more in the state than usual, so trying to determine the point of their origin was complicated when a sale was made. Beyond that, the port authority's rapid transit system also accepted these coins, so a lot of people had them. While in other locations it might be easy to find someone using the coins, in New Jersey, there were a lot of residents who used them daily. They received several calls of people using the coins at different locations, convenience stores, and at least one flower shop, though there didn't appear to be any connection to Jennifer's murder. In one particular incident, police responded to a call from Ann Keller, a bartender in Philadelphia. According to Keller, A white male in his 40s with scratches on his face and blood on his jacket arrived at the bar and paid for his drink with Susan B. Anthony coins pulled from a canvas bag he clutched close to his chest. The Courier-Post reported that when the man tried to leave, customers stopped him and held him until authorities arrived. Philadelphia homicide investigators came and took the man in for questioning, which was conducted Wednesday night and into the morning hours of Thursday, April 7th. Ultimately, the man was released without charges and was not considered connected to the murder. On Friday, April 8th, more than 150 mourners attended Jennifer's funeral. Members of her color guard performed, and the band to which she belonged played somber tones. Jennifer was laid out in her Easter dress in a cream-colored coffin adorned by a large purple ribbon, Jennifer's favorite color. Attendees wore purple or purple ribbons, many of which had Jennifer's initials written on them. At the end of the ceremony, Jennifer's father, Mark, tears in his eyes, approached her casket, reached up, undid his purple tie, and laid it across the casket as Georgia approached and laid a rose beside it. More than 100 cars were involved in the procession from Gardner Funeral Home to the cemetery. Along the way, they passed Magnolia Public School where students stood along the sides of the road in a silent tribute to Jennifer. For Mark, he was still in shock. He had just seen Jennifer on Easter, the day before she was killed, and now had to live with the reality that his little girl was gone. Georgia and Mick struggled as well. They still lived in the home on Jefferson Avenue, though Georgia couldn't bring herself to enter Jennifer's bedroom. Each day, waking up and walking into the living room, the couple were met with an overwhelming flood of emotions, both the good memories of Jennifer and the horrifying discovery of her body, their couch just several feet away from where she had been found. Everything seemed to be collapsing as Mick described the change in their lives, saying, quote, We're not living a normal life. We don't go anywhere. We don't do anything. We're just existing. We ask who and why every day. End quote. The couple couldn't decide whether to stay or go, not wanting to feel like they were abandoning Jennifer, but also acknowledging that living in the house long term simply wasn't likely. In hopes of keeping Jennifer's memory alive, a memorial scholarship fund was created in her honor to be awarded to a graduate at each of Magnolia's school every year. It was important not just to do something in Jennifer's name, but to keep her name in the public, to keep her story going because for investigators, as time passed, their leads were hitting dead ends and they couldn't develop a solid suspect. The FBI was called in by the prosecutor's office and several pieces of evidence were sent to the Bureau for analysis, though what that evidence was and what results were detected has never been revealed. Unfortunately, time began passing and with no major developments, Jennifer's case was seemingly growing cold. Soon, months began passing and then nearly a year, and when March 5th came around, it was the day Jennifer would have turned 17. Georgia and Mick tried to move forward with their lives, but the lack of answers and knowing the killer was still out there was too difficult to bear. When speaking to the Courier Post, Georgia explained, there have been nights where I wake up and I just can't stop crying. Life is terrible. I can't ever see not waking up each morning and missing her all day long. I kiss her picture every morning before I leave the house. Jen gives me strength. You end up looking at people on the street thinking, could they have done it? Jen was exceptional. She was a loving girl. She cared about people. She excelled in sports and she didn't hang with the wrong crowd. I don't understand how whoever did this can go on living day after day. I can't believe they can live with themselves, End quote. While there did not appear to be any new discoveries, leads, or information, Prosecutor Borden stood firm that the case remained active and was being investigated. Speaking with the Inquirer, he explained, quote, As recently as about a week ago, we had additional leads generated, and investigators are following up on those recent leads. I certainly understand the family's frustration. We have every hope that we will solve this case. As for Georgia, she couldn't help but believe it had to be someone Jennifer knew, someone she would have trusted enough to allow them into the house, but not knowing only bred more anger, pain, and frustration. After months of avoiding it, she finally stepped into her daughter's bedroom. She only made it to the closet before she collapsed in tears, wrapping her arms around the clothes left hanging there. The room was unchanged. On Tuesday, April 4th, one year after the murder, more than 300 people attended a candlelight vigil held by Mark. Donations were gathered towards a reward fund for information leading to an arrest. Band members attended, dressed in blue with purple ribbons playing music beneath a portrait of Jennifer. Happy memories of Jennifer's life were shared by those who knew her and Mark tried to put on a strong face to remember his daughter. But when later asked, told the Inquirer, quote, Personally, I feel like I'm dead. It's a feeling like you get in your stomach, like when you're a kid and you did something wrong. I'm constantly empty. My life has forever changed. End quote. Georgia and Mick held a benefit of their own at the bar where Georgia was employed, attended by 75 to 100 people. Donations were taken, though neither Georgia nor Mick attended. It was simply too difficult for them. In their place, Mayor Betty Ann Cowling Carson spoke, thanking people for their support and passing on the appreciation of the McNairs. All told, more than $8,000 was generated through donations. Candlelight vigils and fundraisers would happen multiple times over the years and always on the days leading up to April 4th. By the next year, April of 1996, the reward fund had risen to $15,000. When asked about progress on the case, acting Camden County Prosecutor Joseph Audino acknowledged leads had been developed in the previous years, but none had ever panned out. Georgia and Mick moved out of the Jefferson Avenue home in late 1996 and began turning their attention to trying to help solve the case, raise awareness for it, and perhaps find comfort in others who struggled with the same horrible situation. In April of 1997, three years passed, the couple brought alleged psychic Sylvia Brown into the home in hope that she might provide answers. They had met Brown during a taping of the Montel Williams show, where they had gone on to discuss Jennifer's murder. According to the Courier-Post, Brown believed Jennifer had likely been killed by two teenage males Who had been sent to rough her up by a jealous girl who believed Jennifer was after her boyfriend, and, as Brown put it, things got out of hand. For their part, investigators found nothing of use in Brown's analysis and were unmoved by her statements. In May of 1998, four years and one month since the murder, police finally began questioning someone who they told the McNairs was a suspect. They were shocked when they were told who it was. And while investigators never publicly named the man, Georgia and Mick did, telling the Courier Post that it was friend and former neighbor, Steve O'Brien, the man whose home they had spent the night in when Jennifer was killed. James Kai, a lawyer hired by O'Brien, explained that his client had been questioned at the time of the murder and then again in early 98, but that no charges had been filed and there was no evidence he was involved. At the time, it was reported that O'Brien had given a DNA sample, which was to be compared against DNA found at the scene. Georgia described O'Brien as a family friend, saying, quote, He was in our house all the time. He was in and out to say hi, or sit and watch a race with Mick on the big screen TV, End quote. Unfortunately, nothing would ever develop out of this. A year later, in April of 1999, when reporters asked investigators about O'Brien, the DNA, and whether or not he was a suspect, they had no comment. However, the prosecutor's office did announce that the case was being investigated with the additional assistance of the Camden County Sheriff's Department. Greg Reinhart, a spokesman for the prosecutor's office, made a statement to the Inquirer, during which he acknowledged something which had never been discussed before. The possibility that Jennifer was killed by more than one person, Reinart explained. Quote, there are new leads being pursued. We know where we're looking. We just have to figure out who. We know that she knew at least one of the perpetrators. We're pretty sure there was more than one. End quote. Still, more years would pass with no named suspects, no arrests, no major developments. In August of 2007, Charles Mickey McNair passed away at the age of 63. Mick, who loved Jennifer as his own daughter, never fully overcame the grief and pain of her loss. The last 13 years of his life, there had been good times, bright moments, but there was always that dark shadow lingering in the back of his mind. He believed beyond hope that someday he would see Jennifer's killer charged, that he could see the man sentenced to spend the rest of his life behind bars. That hope never came to fruition, and even if it had, nothing was ever going to bring Jennifer back, and for Mick, life would simply never have the same luster as it had when she was alive. Two years later, in April of 2009, 15 years after the murder, Georgia sat down for what would become one of her final discussions with a reporter from the Philadelphia Daily News. At just 53 years old, she was terminal with scleroderma and wheelchair bound. During the discussion, Georgia explained, while she still held out hope for an arrest, she no longer believed she would be alive to see it. Just three months later, her words would prove prophetic when on July 6th, she passed away at 54 years old. Her funeral was held at Gardner Funeral Home, the same place as her daughters had been 15 years earlier. In her last years, Georgia came to accept the bitter reality that there was a chance her daughter's killer would never be found. Not long after Georgia passed, Lieutenant Arthur Foulkes of the prosecutor's office spoke with the Daily News. He expressed the same frustrations as the family, explaining that at the time, they spoke to everyone they could think of. Friends, classmates, neighbors, family, co-workers of both Georgia and Mick. According to Foulkes, They took DNA from multiple people, but never found a match. However, folks did reveal that there was at least one person they had wanted to speak with, but hadn't, though who that person is was not revealed. Carol Persia Ross, one of Jennifer's older sisters, was also interviewed, and while not revealing a name, expressed that she had her own belief on who was responsible. She also stated quite bluntly her feeling that investigators had long since given up, that an arrest would never come, and that they had messed the case up from the beginning. She struggles to hold on to the memory of her little sister, telling reporters, quote, sometimes I feel like she almost never existed, and I have to snap myself back into reality. She was real, end quote. Carol would now take up her mother's banner, becoming a driving force behind raising money for rewards and awareness of Jennifer's unsolved murder. Lieutenant Folks retired a year later, and of Jennifer's case, he would only say that he believed they were close to making an arrest. Unfortunately, that arrest has still not happened. In May of 2013, 19 years after Jennifer's murder, Carol spoke to NBC News and the Inquirer about a suspect that she and many members of her family have felt was responsible for years. His name was Scott David Ross. 26 at the time of the murder, he was employed by Mick in the Body Shop. However, he wasn't just any regular employee, but was quite close with his boss. The Courier-Post described Ross as being like another son to Jennifer's stepfather. Just a few weeks earlier, on April 28, 2013, Ross died as the result of an overdose at the age of 46. Carol, when discussing him, said, quote, this is the guy, this is the one. He was almost always basically the guy. End quote. She went on to say that it was her belief that Ross was the man who knocked on the door just prior to the murder. Ross had apparently been in the home before, knew the layout well, and was someone Jennifer would have known and felt was trustworthy. Carol also claimed that Ross was sporting a black eye at the funeral. Jason Laughlin. A spokesperson for the prosecutor's office, when asked about Ross, gave little information. He did, however, express that Ross was someone who had been looked at very closely over the years, and that while his death may have ended things for him, their investigation would not stop, saying, quote, his death does not mark the end of this investigation. We do believe there was more than one person involved. This is an active, open case, end quote. Michael Forbes, Ross's brother, always felt that he was innocent and that the police were just harassing him. Forbes stated that both he and his brother had been interviewed by police multiple times. He claimed that DNA samples were taken as well as polygraph tests given. According to Forbes, the DNA didn't match and they had both passed the polygraphs. Investigators, however, would neither confirm nor deny any of what Forbes said. On the day of Ross's funeral, Carol, along with friends and family members, gathered outside the same location where her sister and mother had previously had their services. They didn't speak, they didn't cause a commotion, but every time someone arrived to mourn or walked out, those gathered slowly turned their backs, showing Jennifer's name etched on their shirts. Forbes acknowledged their presence, though he said the family tried to ignore them. Carroll felt they'd gotten their point across. Lieutenant Frank Falco of the prosecutor's office was interviewed by NBC News 10 following the funeral. For the first time, investigators publicly acknowledged that not only was Scott Ross a suspect, but they had in fact DNA tested him. Falco explained, Scott Ross was a person of interest, but it wasn't his DNA. Now we're looking for the second person that there's DNA on. Falco confirmed that they had received new information, which made them turn their focus back to Ross, but he would not reveal what that new information was. According to Falco, they'd received the information on May 1st, five days after Ross had died. While Ross's death may have complicated an already difficult investigation, Carol was unwavering, telling NBC that the family always believed more than one person was involved possibly as many as three. Jennifer was a big, strong, tough woman, and it was hard for them to accept only a single person could have overpowered her in that battle. In regard to Ross's death, Carol stated, quote, one down, one more to go at least, and we will not stop. I have not stopped, and I'm going to keep going, no matter what it takes me, until the day I die. End quote. In the past eight years, there's been few stories about Jennifer's murder, as everything seemingly waits for something to develop, for the final piece to be discovered. That hasn't stopped Carol, who continues to push for the prosecutor's office to put the puzzle together and deliver justice, which has eluded her mother and stepfather, but she is determined will not elude her. As it stands, all we truly know is that police are in possession of one of the killer's DNA. And it's a matter of getting that match. However, with so many years gone, it's difficult for family to believe that will ever happen. Jennifer Lynn Persia was 16 years old when she was brutally murdered in her home on April 4th, 1994. If alive today, she would have turned 43 just a few weeks ago, just 11 years younger than her mother was when she passed away. Her family continues to wonder what she may have become how her life would have turned out, how their own lives would have turned out. They account for all the holidays they lost with her, all the laughter and joy they may have shared in the 27 years since her life was taken in a moment of brutal violence. A family was shattered by the acts of a ruthless killer, or more likely, killers. Jennifer Persia, 16, with a life full of promise and possibility ahead of her, was robbed of everything she was and everything she could ever be. Over the nearly three decades which have passed, her family has never forgotten, nor have they given up. Both Georgia and Mick went to their graves not knowing the truth, never seeing justice served. Now for Carol, it's become her life's mission to finish the job, to see that someone pays the price for what they have taken from her family. Mark, for his part, believes he will likely never see justice served in his life either. Carol doesn't believe in closure. There will never be a time where things are set right, even if they do find the killers. But she wants justice. She wants to know what happened to her sister. Michelle Green, one of Jennifer's dearest friends, wrote to the Courier-Post to request they publish her letter to Jennifer to remind people of who she was how she lived and just how much she meant to everyone who knew her she wrote in part quote, "when you were alive you were always there for me now you're gone and i miss you you were my best friend and someone took you away from me i love you more than life itself i never got to tell you how much i appreciated you i never even got to say goodbye you were taken so suddenly" and I wish I was there to help you. You always seemed to say the right things. You could always cheer me up when I was sad. Now you're gone, and the sadness will always remain. As long as I have memories of you, I will never forget your friendship. I love you, Jennifer Persia. <coughs> If you're like me, then finding just the right piece of jewelry, whether it's a gift for yourself or someone special, can be an incredibly delicate process. Well, thankfully, I found Ana Luisa, A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A, and today, just for Trace Evidence listeners, I've got a special deal to save you 10% off your entire purchase. Ana Luisa provides exceptional quality jewelry crafted with care from the best noble metals. Their process offsets 100% of their carbon emissions, starting with the sourcing of their raw materials all the way to disposal. Their production in limited batches not only ensures they meet the highest production standards, but also eliminates excessive waste. I love that I can feel good about buying from Ana Luisa, and the fact that their prices begin at $39 with no luxury markups makes a good decision into a great one. I just received a gold coin flower necklace that I can't wait to give to my girlfriend. The pendant is beautiful, resembling a sunflower with a fine indentation around the circumference. It feels both strong and lightweight on its fine medium length chain and can be worn with any look. So go to analuisa.com slash trace and treat yourself and your loved ones with a unique gift and use my code trace to get 10% off. I absolutely recommend them. They are a great brand making beautiful, sustainable jewelry. So go check out analuisa.com slash trace and make sure you use code trace to get 10% off your entire purchase. Head over to analuisa.com slash trace for 10% off with code trace today. If you have 30 free minutes, you never have to worry about a break in at your home ever again. That's how quick and easy it is to set up a security system from Safe. It's the kind of thing that's so easy to do, you can do it during a Netflix binge, watching a game, or listening to a certain podcast. I'm extremely security conscious, and when I received Safe, I was blown away by how comprehensive it is while being easy to set up and use. I feel so much safer leaving my house or going to bed at night after punching in my code and knowing the house is secured and monitored. What's really great is how customizable it is, not just an out-of-the-box template that doesn't fit all homes. You can choose the exact sensors you need or get an expert's opinion on what you should do. Everything arrives in about a week, which means if you order today, your whole family can go to bed feeling safe and protected next week. A lot of people already feel safe in their homes, but they might not be, and it's a conversation that everyone should have. Simply Safe is a small, easy step to take to ensure that everyone not only feels safe, but is safe. Go to simplysafe.com/trace today to customize your system and get a free security camera. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. That's simplysafe.com/trace. I've covered a lot of cases that go into really horrible details, disturbing facts, and emotionally challenging outcomes. This one ranks high for me as one of the most difficult cases I've ever covered, both in terms of the evidence and the impact. I can't begin to imagine what Jennifer's family has gone through over the years from her murder to the loss of Georgia and Mick to now believing it will most likely never truly be solved, that no one will face justice for what they've done. I read through so many statements from family and friends about how wonderful Jennifer was. All the things she might have gone on to do with her life. She was just 16 years old when she was murdered, and for what? $200 worth of coins? The depravity of the world never ceases to amaze. 27 years is a long time to wait for something to happen. For something to be revealed. For the killers to get arrested. For a DNA match to occur. Apparently, the closest they've really come was in 2013 when new information led their focus to Scott Ross, but by that time it was too late as he died a few days earlier. That turning of events, while frustrating and horrifying, did manage to reveal that the family may not have been off base in their belief that Ross knew something about the murder, as well as confirming that the DNA police possess belongs to someone else who was there that night. Certainly a crime committed by more than one person. You never really know everything police have on a case. They're pretty damn good at not sharing important information that could affect the outcome. But this situation feels different. Rather than it being a situation where they aren't really sure, it seems more likely that they have someone in mind. Someone they've been looking at for a long time and ultimately what holds everything up is enough evidence to do something about it. It becomes a question, however, of whether or not the person they had in mind was Scott Ross, or if maybe they have an idea of who the other person might be. Depending on how much DNA they possess, you can't help but wonder about the possibility of researching familial DNA to try and identify this person. In so many cases covered on this show, we're met with a handful of different theories to examine to weigh the pros and cons, but this case is different. It's not a matter of determining whether or not the crime was random. No one believes that it was. It's not a question of did Jennifer know her killers? The smart money says she did. So all we really have to examine here is what exactly occurred that night, who may have been responsible, and why the theft of $200 somehow transformed into a brutal, violent, and savage murder of a 16-year-old. I think the best place to start is with the knock at the door. Based on what Georgia revealed about the phone conversation Jennifer had at the time, she described the person as an old friend of the family. Carol and other family members believe that person was Scott Ross, though that's never been confirmed by anyone working on the case in an official capacity. We don't know a great deal about Ross, but what we do know would surely make the description fit. According to several family members, Ross worked for Mick, was very close with him, and was looked at like another son. He was around the family, hung out with Mick's kids, and would have been welcome in the Jefferson Avenue home, meaning that he would have been familiar with its layout. If he was as close to Mick as has been said, then he certainly would have known Jennifer. She had been around Mick from the time she was six years old, meaning that Ross would have been 17. There's a good chance that throughout her childhood, she encountered him on more than one occasion and may have felt that he was someone she could trust since Mick would have had to have trusted him to allow him around his family and keep him employed. It's difficult to know what was going on in Ross's life in 94, but his own brother after his death described him as the type who might steal from you, who you might not be able to trust, but definitely not a killer. Given the way he died, it's clear that there were substance abuse problems there, and when it comes to the theft of $200 in coins, it wouldn't be shocking for something so stupid to be tied to drugs. Also, according to a neighbor, Jennifer was last seen alive between six and six thirty, sitting on the steps of her home. Now, if the person who had knocked on the door creeped Jennifer out, it seems unlikely that less than an hour later she'd just go sit outside by herself. This suggests to me one of two possibilities: either Jennifer wasn't worried about the person because she knew and trusted him, or maybe she was waiting for someone someone who was going to swing by, someone who had said they were coming, or maybe. Someone who knocked on the door and said they'd come back in an hour or so. Unfortunately, we have no real way of knowing. The running theory is that whoever committed the crime either planned it out, believing no one was going to be home, or gained entry to the house through a connection to Jennifer, planning to perhaps steal the coins without her noticing, but the perpetrator ended up being caught in the act and panicked. Detective Falco, when discussing this case, specifically described the crime as a robbery gone wrong, believing that more than likely, When the killer or killers tried to subdue Jennifer they quickly learned how strong she was and as things escalated murder became a split second reaction. That's surely possible. However we also know that there was more than likely someone else in the house that night. Given that the DNA found didn't match Ross the implication is that while he may have been there he likely was not the one who actually killed Jennifer. We don't know where the DNA came from outside of blood which was spilled either during the murder itself, bloody weapons become slippery and killers often cut themselves in the process, or perhaps when Jennifer smashed the glass mug on the killer's head. The unknown source of DNA to me is likely from skin beneath Jennifer's fingernails, but that's purely speculation on my part. There's a lot of different ways it all could have gone down. Someone Jennifer trusts tries to steal the coins while she's doing something else in the house. She catches them. Accusations fly. She's going to tell her father, and things start to get out of control. Or maybe the killers arrived at the house, and while one was supposed to be subduing Jennifer, the other went for the coins, but upon returning, found that the other person had lost control and either killed Jennifer or was in the process of doing so. Based on the murder weapon being either a pocket knife, screwdriver, or another thin-pointed object, it seems like murder probably wasn't the original intent here. I've often wondered if it was possible that the strangulation may have come not with the intent to murder, but to control. And while one was doing that, the other took the next step and stabbed. Then it was too late to turn back. Detective Falco described the killer as someone who had a lot of anger, had a lot of issues with women, and perhaps had a problem with Jennifer on a personal level. This could amount to a lot of different things, but it's not out of the question that you could be looking at someone who had jealousy, either of wanting Jennifer, or perhaps of her being taken in by Mick and treated as though she were his own biological child, while someone else close to him was never given that treatment. Someone who thought of himself as a surrogate son, perhaps. One possibility I've often considered when looking at the crime is whether or not the killers were in agreement. This is purely speculative, but what if the fight in the home followed the trajectory it did, kitchen, living room, stairs, because one person was trying to calm the situation, while another was the aggressor and couldn't be stopped? For instance, the killers focused on taking out Jennifer. She saw their faces, threatened to turn them in, whatever the reason. But the other one doesn't want it to go that far. Maybe at some point, one tells Jennifer to get upstairs and lock the door, but the other strikes knocking the partner to the ground and then going for the kill. It could explain someone having a black eye at the funeral, or of course that could have been the handiwork of Jennifer as she fought ferociously for her own life. However, if it did go down that way, it becomes a matter of, if I go down, you're going down with me. Possible, but perhaps not probable. I tend to lean more towards Falco's way of thinking, that everything went wrong and Jennifer was killed out of sheer panic. I'd imagine she was screaming, making noise, making threats. She'd seen the intruders' faces, and in desperation, the killers lashed out to silence her. Whoever would have been with Ross that night, if indeed he was there, would have to be someone that he'd be compelled to protect. A family member, close friend, someone who he'd be willing to lie and cover up for until the day he died. Sure, you could also say it was a matter of self-preservation, for if he turned in the other person, he was going to get named as well. So why not cut a deal with investigators in the beginning, place an anonymous call, or something else? Well, some people are just garbage, and that may have been the situation here. We know Ross's brother claimed that both he and Ross gave DNA to investigators, and if that's true, we can likely rule out the brother as being involved. Also, if the DNA was shared between siblings, that probably would have been noticed in the final analysis. The fact of the matter is, while Ross certainly seems like someone investigators dug into, and dug into deep, over the next 19 years before he died, they never managed to come up with enough to file charges. After his death, they still couldn't say that had he not died, he would have been charged, which suggests that whatever new information they receive might have been enough to apply pressure to him during questioning, but it would not have been enough to make an arrest. If he was involved, how is it that over all those years he never said anything to anyone about it? No one was ever tempted to turn him in for the reward money? Well, I suppose maybe they were, and maybe that's who called investigators on May 1st. Perhaps that's just the most frustrating aspect here, that everything needed to break this case seems to linger just barely outside of your grasp. According to Detective Falco, over the years, Police conducted 150 interviews and took 100 DNA samples, none of which have ever matched. The DNA has also apparently never matched anyone who's in the system already, which means the killer has either managed to live his life for the last 27 years without being arrested for a major crime, or perhaps is dead himself. This wasn't a case of a serial killer, of a psychopath compelled to kill, This was a poorly planned panicked execution which doesn't really fit into the pattern of someone who's likely to do it again. It might, however, become the basis for major substance abuse problems that could lead to someone dying at a young age. The only other name that came up in this investigation was that of Steve O'Brien, the next-door neighbor who had grown up with Mick. While the old friend-of-the-family statement could apply to Ross, it could also apply to O'Brien. We know even less about this guy than we do about Ross, so it's hard to say what kind of a man he is. I didn't find any criminal history in his background, nor did I find any reason that he was ever looked at as a suspect. Whether it was based on proximity, answers he gave during his original interview, or statements from someone else, we don't know. What we do know is that he wasn't considered a suspect until 1998, four years after the murder, or at least not a strong enough suspect to be named until then. Much like Ross, We know his DNA did not match, so he could have been in the house that night, but he was not the one who left the evidence behind. This would suggest he wasn't the person who was smashed with the glass mug since both Georgia and Mick saw him that same night. In fact, they stayed at his home, and neither reported him as having injuries. Strangely though, Georgia did tell reporters that he was very short with them that night. Now imagine a person you've grown up with, who you've known most of your life, Has their daughter murdered? And when you're letting them stay in your home that night because they can't stay in their own home because their daughter's dead and people are investigating the scene, there's blood and broken glass everywhere. You don't sit down and comfort them. You don't offer help. You just say, You've got to work early in the morning and need to go to bed. Strange behavior, but not criminal. Without knowing what led to O'Brien being considered a suspect, it's really hard to work with much. All we really know is at the time, he was living in the home because he was going through a divorce. His parents, with whom he was living, were in Florida on vacation at the time the crime was committed, and when the information came out that he was being looked at as a suspect, no one really said much in his defense. Neither Georgia nor Mick felt like it couldn't have been him or he wouldn't have done this, but nothing ended up coming out of it anyway. I don't generally like to give anyone the benefit of the doubt for no reason whatsoever because in all reality, anyone is capable of committing horrible acts. But over a matter of stealing $200 worth of coins kept in plastic jars, surely someone who knew Mick as well as he did grew up with him and was a frequent visitor wouldn't take such a massive risk, right? Not to mention, he'd likely have been aware Jennifer was home. And if it was all about money, Why not take the jewelry and the credit cards and go through the cupboards and the drawers? It doesn't make any sense. There is the question of keys. Oftentimes, neighbors who are good friends exchange keys in case they get locked out. We don't know if O'Brien had a key or if his parents did that he would then have access to in their house, but that could go lengths to explaining the absence of forced entry. If someone has a key, then they don't need to force their way in. However. If more than one person was in the house that night, it doesn't make as much sense. If you're going to try and steal money from your good friend and neighbor, I'm not sure why you're bringing someone with you, especially if you know they're not going to be home and you're unaware that their daughter is there. Then again, stranger things have happened, but I think it's worth noting that after naming O'Brien as a suspect in 98, there was never additional follow-up, and he doesn't appear to have been questioned by police again over the years. So what does that leave us with? The same puzzling, frustrating, and confounding mystery investigators and Jennifer's family have faced for nearly three decades. A brutal murder, apparently over $200 worth of coins. A robbery gone wrong. A 16-year-old left dead and a family destroyed over such a paltry amount of money in this needless and vicious crime. How many ways can you really say it to try and express how absolutely mind-boggling it all is? It's as if the answers are there, right in front of you but you can't see the forest for the trees. I really struggle with this case because of the questions that are left. One that bothers me revolves around DNA. If you have the DNA, but you can't match it, and you have someone in mind, why not go through their garbage or try and get their DNA in a way where you don't need to provide enough evidence for a warrant? While it's extremely time-consuming, costly, and difficult, why not take a shot at going through familial DNA? Maybe there's someone out there who could offer their assistance in this case and get the ball rolling or maybe Carol's not completely off in her belief that investigators while following up on leads aren't super focused on cracking this case anymore. Jennifer Persia had her whole life in front of her before it was taken in the short window of approximately 2 hours between 6:30 and 8:30 p.m. She fought with everything she had injured her killer and had dozens of defensive wounds on her hands and arms. Ultimately, her killers were able to overcome her, subdue her, and kill her before escaping into the night, and to this day, they've never been charged. They've never had to face justice for what they've done. Carol believes one of them is gone, and only one remains. If that's the case, why has no one come forward? How could you live with knowing what someone did to Jennifer and not open your mouth? Or is it possible the other killer's dead, too, has been for a while, and without getting one to name the other, you're unlikely to find either? In just over a week, it will have been 27 years since Jennifer Persia was killed. While investigators have never referred to the case as anything but active, there's been pure silence over the past eight years. Hopefully, information's being compiled and investigators are narrowing the scope but they could clearly use some help. And the fact of the matter is there is without a doubt someone out there who holds the answers, someone who could provide the information necessary to see justice done and the grief of a family somewhat comforted by an arrest, a conviction, or just the pure knowledge of who and why. Unfortunately, unless that person comes forward, the DNA is matched or new evidence is discovered the murder of Jennifer Persia will remain open, unsolved, and growing cold. I'm at best moderately skilled when it comes to design. I've made some logos, shirts, and graphics for the website, but I don't possess the ability to develop art from my own hands. That's a skill I never had. When it comes to working with available art, there's always something in the way be it outside of my budget or just poorly designed tools. I've always wished there was something better to help me achieve my goals, to see my visions come to life, and now that I have Canva Pro, my designs are next level. Canva Pro is the easy-to-use design platform that has everything you need to design like a pro. Whether you're already a professional or just getting started, Canva Pro can help boost you and your team's productivity and creativity. Canva Pro has everything you need in one place, including a collection of over 75 million premium videos, audio, and graphics. My favorite Canva Pro feature is Magic Resize, where you can quickly and efficiently resize any design for whatever format you need, whether it's social media posts, YouTube videos, or your own website. I really love how quick and easy it is to do and how it never reduces the quality of my creation making it look sharp and professional when I post it. I've recently been using this for my YouTube thumbnails, and it's made an arduous task so fast and easy I kind of enjoy doing it now. There's no idea too big or small for Canva Pro, whether you're getting into marketing, trying to launch your own brand, or perhaps a new podcast. But it's not just for business. Artists and craft types will also find a plethora of resources to make whatever you dream into a reality. There's no complications, no complex things to learn, no confusion, just straightforward directions and easy-to-use tools that will take you from a beginner to a pro almost overnight. Design like a pro with Canva Pro. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you use my promo code. Just go to canva.me slash trace to get your free 45-day extended trial. That's C-A-N-V-A dot M E slash trace. Canva.me slash trace today. If you're looking for more information about the murder of Jennifer Persia, there are many news articles available, predominantly from the Philadelphia Inquirer and Courier Post. Jennifer's mother appeared on the Montel Williams show, and the story has been given coverage by several news programs, most recently NBC's On the Case with Deanna Durante. There's also a family-run Facebook page you can find by searching for In Memory of Jennifer Persia. If you have any information about the April 4th, 1994 murder of Jennifer Lynn Persia, please call the Magnolia Police Department at 856-784-1884. You can also call the Camden County Sheriff at 856-225-5475. You can email the Camden County Prosecutor's Office at ccpotips at ccprosecutor.org. You can also contact the Citizens Crime Commission at 215-546-TIPS, where you can remain anonymous if you choose. What do you believe happened? Tweet me at traceevpod, message me on Instagram at traceevidencepod, Email me at traceevidencepod at gmail.com or comment in the Facebook group. Trace evidence would not be possible without support from amazing listeners like you. And now I'd like to take a moment to thank our fantastic Patreon producers Alicia Lorraine, Brittany Bivens, Christine Greco, Krista Colvin, Denise Dingsdale, Diani Dyson, Eamon Brady, James, Jennifer Winkler, Joni Berkwitz, Kara Moreland, Kevin Bonham, Marla Wright, Melissa Breckhizen, Michael Draves, Nick mohar Quinn McBreen, Roberta Janssen, Sarah Levinen, Sarah Mascaratolo, Travis Skepko, Stephanie Joyner, Stephanie Eve, Tom Archer, Tom Radford, Tracy Woods, and Vox Nihili. Your contributions to Trace Evidence are invaluable, and your support of the show is both appreciated and extremely humbling. If you're interested in supporting Trace Evidence and gaining access to exclusive merch and ad-free episodes please visit patreon.com slash trace evidence or go to trace-evidence.com and click on the support option. That's going to conclude this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening, sharing the show, and helping keep these cases alive. I hope you'll join me next week for another unsolved case on the next episode of Trace Evidence.
2: Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit
0: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
1: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.